Amen, 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 right? That was wonderful. We appreciate that. And I was just uh, thinking as they were singing, I am so thankful that we see the next generations up here and set apart for the Lord. I don't know what that does to you, but I get excited about that because we know God is continuing to build His church and, and these guys up here, I mean, the way I'm looking at them, I'm old, right, compared to them. But I still feel young, right? I'm 53 and got a lot of energy and I'm praying the Lord will continue to give me energy and study in His Word because that is the most precious thing that He allows me to do. And I just really enjoy uh, being a part of this fellowship and this body. But thank you, praise team, for all that you do uh, in worship here at Grace. Take your Bibles and go with me to Deuteronomy in the 17th chapter. I know what you're thinking, that we're in Second Peter, but that's okay. You can turn to Deuteronomy first. Deuteronomy the 17th chapter. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the privilege of being able to study your word. As we do so, Lord, we pray that your spirit will be our teacher and would guide us in all truth. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so um, he needed a witness. This young man that was in my life needed a witness, in fact, very badly, to defend his uh, answer to a question that I asked him. I was a teacher at Parkway Christian, and during the lunch hour, you were supposed to be down in the lunchroom if you were a student, and um, you were not supposed to be up in the hallway, and you certainly weren't supposed to be smoking in the bathroom. Well, I happened to walk upstairs and go to my class, and I needed to go to the restroom first, and I walked in the restroom, and there's this puff of smoke that's coming from the stall. I'm like, well, somebody's smoking, and it smelled like cigarette smoking. And so I waited for the young man to get done, and he heard me come in the bathroom, and um, he disposed of the cigarette, and when he walked around the corner to wash his hands, I said, hey. And he said, hey. <laughs> and I said, have you been smoking? He said, no, sir. <laughs> so I said, why don't you wait for me in the hall? I'll be out in a minute. And so I went outside in the hall after I was finished in the bathroom. And I said, have you been smoking? He said, no, sir. I said, well, here's the thing. It was only me and you in that bathroom. And I know I wasn't smoking. And I asked him one more time. I looked at him right now. I said, were you smoking? He said, no, sir. I said, okay. I want you to do something for me. I want you to breathe on me. And so he said, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, breathe on me. And he breathed on me. I said, you have been smoking. And he said, no, sir, I hadn't been smoking. He needed a witness, right, very badly, uh, to come behind him and say he wasn't smoking, but the, re the reality was that he was smoking. Witnesses are important in our lives. Uh, witnesses are important in Scripture. The Bible tells us 
in the book, book of Deuteronomy about witnesses and the importance of witnesses. In fact, that's our focus this morning as we talk about what Peter witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, I wanted to kind of give you an understanding of how important witnesses uh, were in Scripture. And so I wanted you to look back with me to Deuteronomy in the 17th chapter. Look what the Bible says. It says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect, for that is a detestable thing to the Lord. If there is found in your midst in any of your towns which the Lord your God has given you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly host which I have not commanded. And if it is told you and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. And behold, if it is true and the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. Look at verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now I want you to go back to Second Peter in the first chapter because Peter talks about being an eyewitness but not just him. It was James and it was John. They witnessed the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. They witnessed the future glory of Christ in his second coming as he will be in his kingdom. And he says in verse 16 that there were multiple witnesses. Um, the Bible talks about the importance of witnesses in Deuteronomy 19, a a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. You know, it reminds you of the New Testament passage, the second time the term ecclesia is used, which means the church. You know when, the, when that takes place? It takes place in the context of Matthew 18. When you have a sinning brother and you go to that brother and that brother... Right, you, The whole purpose of going to that brother is to see them turn. And, and then the Bible says that if they don't turn from their sin, you take two or three witnesses with you. And all along the way in that process of church discipline, which should not be ignored, by the way, because the purpose is not to bring forth like all these names, right? We're not trying to say, hey, look, look at all these bad things this person's doing. What we want to see is this person restored to the Lord and to the fellowship. And so the, the writer tells us that they, after two or three witnesses, if they don't repent, what do you do? The Bible says you tell it to the church and there are multiple witnesses. And then what are those multiple witnesses to do? Gossip? No. You know what the multiple witnesses are do? To go to that person. Why? Because you want to see that person repent and turn back to the Lord, right? And so witnesses 
are a part of the Old Testament. You come to the New Testament in Matthew 18. Witnesses are very, very critical. You go to 1 Timothy chapter 5 in the context of church leadership. Notice what it says. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So, you know, I look at the scriptures and I go, well, you know, Peter says, hey, we were eyewitnesses, plural. In fact, that word we, that, that pronoun we occurs in 16 through 18 numerous times. In fact, in verse 17, it's an, an emphatic position. We were, we heard, right? And, and Peter's emphasizing, hey, look, it wasn't just one of us that witnessed the future glory of Jesus in his kingdom, but it was me and it was James and it was John. You think about the life of Christ, man, it gets me excited because there are a lot of witnesses. You think about his birth, there were witnesses. You think about his, his life in general, there were many witnesses to his life. You think about his death, there were multiple witnesses to his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension. And there will be multiple witnesses to his coming again. In fact, as we're going to see in a few moments... In the Gospel of John, the Bible tells us that the second coming of Jesus Christ, unlike the first coming, in this way, every eye will see him. Every eye. And so what Peter and James and John get to see is like they get to read the newspaper tomorrow, right? They, need, they get to read about tomorrow's events today. That's what happens at the transfiguration of Christ. They get to see Christ in his future glory. And it wasn't just Peter, but it was James and it was John. And do you know why that's so important? Because as Peter's writing this epistle, as he's writing this letter to these believers, he spends the first part of that letter talking about their salvation. He spends chapter 3 talking about their sanctification. This is how you need to live in light of his return. And in chapter 2, right in the middle, it's kind of an ugly chapter because he describes these false teachers, these ones that are scoffing at, at this thought of, of Christ returning. In fact, that continues in chapter 3. And Peter even says, some say, the scoffers say, where is the promise of his coming? Well, as we talked about last week, right? There are continual attacks on Christ, on his birth, on his death, on his resurrection, on his ascension, on his coming. And what's Peter doing? Listen, Peter is testifying to these believers, Jesus is coming. That's what he's telling them. Jesus is coming. Do you believe that this morning? Jesus is coming. Um, he says at the end of verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You say, what did they see? Well, Matthew says it this way, his face shone like the sun. It's interesting, Mark doesn't comment on his face. It says quite a bit about his clothing, but he doesn't comment on his face. Luke says the appearance of his face became different. So they're on that Mount of Transfiguration. Remember last week we talked about it, and, and the Lord's praying, and then, and then his, his appearance changes. And so the Bible tells us that his face shone like the sun. Luke says his face became different. Matthew says his garments became as white as light, 
Luke says his clothing became white and gleaming. Look what Mark says. Mark says, I thought this was interesting. Mark says, his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Isn't that pretty interesting? I kind of thought about laundry when I was reading that because he alludes to laundry. And I thought, I've turned a lot of things a lot of colors, right? But white and gleaming, as no launder on earth can whiten them. That's how he describes the Lord coming in his glory. So we need to understand on that Mount of Transfiguration, there's a lot that's going on. Not only is the, the conversation about the departure of the Lord as, as it relates to his death and burial and resurrection and ascension, but on that Mount of Transfiguration, there is conversation, right, and about that. But then on that Mount of Transfiguration, there's also this picture, right, this change and they're able to witness that change and they see Jesus in his glory as he will be in his kingdom. <laughs> wow, what an experience that must have been for Peter and for James and for John. But that's the testimony that Peter gives to this audience who is being challenged in relationship to this particular doctrine. He says at the end of 16, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, as I begin to think about that, and I begin to think about the whole of the book, I couldn't help but think that as Peter's writing, what's he wanting from these believers? What's he wanting them to do? He's wanting them to hold on to their faith. He's wanting them to remain steadfast in their faith. He doesn't want them to be Right? He doesn't want them to be impacted by the scoffers who are saying, ah, where is the promise of his coming? You know, we have scoffers today. There was a young man in a college in the state of Florida just back in the spring who was suspended from his college because a professor got up in front of the class and in talking about the crucifixion of Christ and the deity of Christ expressed the fact that the crucifixion was just a made-up story and that Jesus Christ was not God, that even the apostles didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God. And this young man stood up in the classroom and stood up for Christ. And he was suspended from the school for a period of time. You say, you know what that did? As I read that story, I thought, hey... There were scoffers in Peter's day, but there's still scoffers today. There are plenty of them out there who believe you and I are absolutely ignorant if we believe in Christ. Who believe that, hey, there is absolutely no way that someone died and was buried and rose again. And yet the Bible tells us what there were over 500 witnesses to the resurrected Christ. See, witnesses have been a large part of this. And the Bible tells us that while there are witnesses to the death and the burial and resurrection of Christ, Peter and the other two apostles were witnesses of a future event, the second coming. And so Peter's concerned that they remain steadfast. Um, so I began to think through that, and I thought, okay, well, not only does he want them to remain steadfast in their faith, but, but what is really the root, right? Right? When you think about the root in terms of the enemy, 
Who is really the enemy? Is that that professor in that school? Is that who the real enemy is? No, the real enemy is described for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look what it says. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The real enemy is described. Notice what Paul writes. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are what? Perishing. In whose case the God of this world who is... Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You know, the one behind the scoffers is the enemy. It's the God of this world. It's Satan. You know, Peter writes about him in this way in 1 Peter That he's like a what? A roaring lion seeking someone to devour. My friends, listen to me. The enemy is real. He's real. Anytime someone comes to Christ, Satan's not going. He's on the attack. He's on the attack. And we live in a world and we live in a culture, my friends, listen to me. This message is being attacked. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming? I mean, do you really believe it? Are you living like it? Are you living like it? That's a tough one to think through, isn't it? Because it seems like to me that when he talks about the coming of Christ, whether it's in this this epistle or any other letter, when there's a reference to the coming of Christ, there's also discussion about how I should live. And do you know in the context of 2 Peter, he talks about that. How should one live in light of the coming of Christ? Listen, the real enemy is Satan. The Bible says in this verse, in whose case the God of the world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So as I was reading through that and thinking through that, I thought, man, Lord, I need to pray for my relatives and my friends that you would open their eyes. Because I want to tell you something. You can't open their eyes. You can't do it. It's impossible. The Bible tells us that the Father draws and the Bible says the Spirit convicts. Right? That's what the Scriptures tell us. The Father draws, John chapter 6. The Spirit convicts, John chapter 16. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He does that. I mean, because think about it, if we could just save someone, wouldn't we? Because we know the end of the story. And what's Peter telling these believers? He's telling them the end of the story. Christ is coming. Stand on that truth. Jesus is coming. Well, there are scoffers. And we expect that because the word, the word tells us that. But then the book of Revelation tells us that he's coming. In fact, did you know if you study the scriptures in, in terms of prophecy, 
that if you were to, to look at the, prophet, the prophetic scriptures as it relates to his first advent, um, comparing to his second advent, that there are double the scriptures that speak about the second advent. So you look back and you go, wow. Well, he did come and he did live and he did die and he was raised and all that happened just like the prophet said it would. Why in the world would we doubt the second coming? He's coming. Revelation tells us, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, even so, amen. Behold, he's coming. He is coming. The scriptures tell us. Now, I don't know what your thoughts are in terms of when you think he's coming. What we teach here at Grace is this. We believe that the next calendar on the Lord's uh, the next event on the Lord's calendar is the rapture of the church. I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 because I want, you, I want you to understand the difference here. So the next event on the Lord's calendar is the rapture. And you're going to see as we read this scripture that, that Paul, the apostle Paul, thought that Jesus was coming when he was alive. He had that anticipation that Christ himself was coming. And so we have, in 1 Thessalonians 4, the next event on God's calendar described for us. Look at it. Verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. So he's talking to believers about those who are asleep, Okay, that you, and that word asleep there is the word dead, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. You ever been to a funeral of an unbeliever and seen grieving that you even would find hard to describe in words? That happened to me years ago. I was sitting in a funeral home, and I mean years ago, and, and I walked into the funeral home and, and when I was visiting um, a family, um, and, and there was grieving like I had never heard before in my life. I didn't know the person, but I heard the grieving, and I heard the message, and none of it had to do with hope, and none of it had to do with Christ. And so my deduction was this, the grieving was without hope. Aren't you glad when we go to funerals of believers that we can rejoice and celebrate? I am. I heard a guy on the radio this last week and I was really troubled with his statement. He said, I'm not sure what believers are supposed to do at funerals. Do we grieve or do we celebrate? And there's no way I can talk inside that radio, but I wanted to. I want to say we celebrate. We celebrate the home going of believers. And so what Paul is doing here is giving hope 
to these guys because they were questioning what happens to those who are asleep who have gone before. And so he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So he identifies the fact there are those who have no hope. Notice verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And notice this, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So the authority here is the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. So Paul has it in mind, hey, we, us, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And notice what it says, verse 16, and the dead in Christ shall what? They shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. My friends, because heaven is about the Lord. And so we meet him in the clouds, Paul says. And thus, notice this, we meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall what? Always be with the Lord. So that's the next event on the calendar of the Lord is the rapture of the church. It's when he comes for those who are in Christ, his bride. He comes for them. Well, then subsequent to that is the tribulation period on earth. If you ever want to read the details of that, just go to Revelation chapter 6, and you'll see the details of the tribulation period on earth while we're in heaven. And chapters 4 and 5 are are great pictures, right, of, of what goes on in heaven with the Lord. But chapter 6 through chapter 18 talk about what takes place on earth during that time. And what takes place on earth during that time, my friends, in one word, is wrath. I was recently in a conversation and someone was talking with me about love, 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 love. God, God, we need to emphasize God's love, God's love, God's love, and, and I'm for that. This person said to me, how could anyone, how could any loving God send anyone to hell? I said, he doesn't. In fact, there's a great love story to be told. That he loved you so much that he was willing to die for you. To take your place. To take the wrath that you deserve. Well... Revelation 6 through 18 tell us about this time of wrath. This time, and it's an awful time. But at the end of that time, the Bible tells us, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, in Revelation 19, that Jesus Christ will come with his armies. And the armies are the church. And you remember the verse right here that I just showed you? This is it. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. It's not like the first advent. Every eye did not see him when he was born, but every eye will see him when he comes. Look at what it says in the next part. Even those who pierced him. There's a song that a Christian artist sings and I can't remember the title of it, but he talks about we were the ones that put the nails in his hands, right? Right? 
and put the, the, the crown of thorns on his head. You know, he's, the, the song goes something like that. And it's testifying about this person, at least the way I understand it, who comes to Christ. I'm the one who drove those nails in your hands. I'm the one that put right that crown of thorns in your brow. I'm the one who did that. Even those who pierced him. The Bible says, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So I ask you the question this morning, do you believe he's coming? Do you believe he's coming? I believe that the scriptures tell us that, that he's coming for his church. And I believe he's going to take his church up. And I believe we're going to be with the Lord. And in that time period, we're going to be judged, the Bible tells us. And then one day, one day, He'll come back to earth with his church. And this is where Peter's talking about. In all his glory, he'll come back. And he will rule and he will reign in all his glory. And every eye will see him. Why? Because he is coming. There's a, a story about General Douglas MacArthur. Um, that I wanted to kind of read to you. In 1942, General Douglas MacArthur, a five-star general and field marshal, was forced to leave the Philippines. But when he left, he gave a promise. He said, I shall return. And when he reached Australia from Bataan, he reiterated his promise. He said, I came through, I shall return. And then you'll remember that after many months of trials, finally General Douglas MacArthur with forces, with forces landed again in the Philippines. And when he landed, he said these words, people of the Philippines, I have returned. By the grace of Almighty God, our forces stand again on Philippines soil. So MacArthur's message was, I shall return. Well, he did. But how much more confident should you and I be? That was just a man saying that. Jesus Christ is coming again because he said so. He said he was coming. I want to close this morning with you going back to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John because the Bible tells us that Jesus gives to some of these same disciples this promise. It's right before his crucifixion. And if you back up to the context in, in John chapter 13, the Bible tells us that verse 36 of John 13 Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Because Jesus had just told him, I'm leaving you, and where I go now, you can't come. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. Now, remember, this is the same Peter who was on the Mount of Transfiguration, who was a witness to... The coming of Christ. 
Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. Well, these guys are troubled. Guess what? The Lord knew it. He didn't look at him and say, hey, are you troubled? He knew it because he's omniscient. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Notice what he says, for I go to prepare a place for you. I want you to notice the personal pronouns, I, in this section. It's all on the Lord, all right? For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will what? I will come again. He's coming for his church. I will come again. And I love this next phrase. And receive you to myself. (laughs) You ever had one of your children when they're small, um, sick, right? All of us have had sick children and and, and I don't think in all the years that my boys were sick, did they ever crawl up in my arms and go, oh, Daddy, I just want you. I don't think that ever happened. Um, in fact, I know it didn't. But I do know this, that when my boys were sick, they wanted their mom to hold them. They wanted their mom. And that's the... That's the image I have here. I have the image here that that the Lord wants us for himself. He wants to bring Thad Blunt to himself. That's just past understanding for me. But he loves me that much. And so Jesus tells his disciples, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. And we close this morning with this scripture. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Do you know that message is not popular today? People don't want to hear that Jesus Christ is the only way. And they will argue with you until your hair falls out. But do you know that on that Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and James and John got to read tomorrow's paper. And they read it that day. And they said, Peter said, to these believers, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his coming. He is coming. Are we living like he's coming? Let's pray together. Lord, I'm uh, encouraged that your word tells us you're coming again. And we know and we believe that you're coming for your church. 
We believe that because your word tells us that. Um, You used um, men through their own individual personalities to pin this revelation that we have before us. And part of that revelation is that our Savior is coming again. Lord, um, I don't know if everyone in here knows you. I don't know that. But I pray if there's one that doesn't know you that today, um, today might be that day of salvation. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be like that young man in Florida who stood on the truth, who was willing to stand firm on what he believed. He was ridiculed for his belief, and yet he stood firm. These believers that Peter was writing to were being ridiculed They were being made fun of. It's interesting, things hadn't changed a whole lot. People were making fun of us, if we believe. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us through this scripture that is a glorious scripture that points back to a glorious time when our Lord Jesus on that mountain was transfigured. And these men were able to see tomorrow's events. (laughs) They were able to see Jesus Christ coming in all his glory. And the Bible tells us in that story the reaction of the disciples was one of fear. And they fell to the ground. And Lord, I love what you did. I love the fact that Scripture records you told them not to be afraid. Lord, we don't need to be afraid of anything because we know the rest of the story. What we need to do is fear you. We need to worship you. And I pray that as we consider this truth, that indeed you are coming, that we might live in light of that in our lives. That our lives might be a picture, a testimony to people that are around us that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would unashamedly stand on your truth just as Peter had in his, Lord, in his gut, he had it, a concern and a love for these believers. He wanted them to remain steadfast. I pray that we would be, as the Apostle Paul wrote, in light of his coming, that we would be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. But Lord, you have given us a purpose for every single day. Help us to remain steadfast, and we make this prayer in the name of Christ. Amen.